everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss, and I'm a licensed therapist. Licensed therapist. Starting off strong, everybody. Um, specializing in OCD and anxiety disorders, and um, thank you all for joining me today for this uh, for this wonderful episode. Um, so for those of you who are new to the podcast, this is typically, and it is today, a question and answer based podcast, uh, where you can send me questions if you go over to fearcastpodcast.com or find me over at Instagram at fearcastpodcast. Uh, you can send me a question about OCD and anxiety, and I will, uh, I, I see all the questions, I will, I will uh, uh, consider them, and I will likely put them up on a future episode. So today is a special episode in the sense that um, I have Dr. Michael Greenberg joining me again to actually answer uh, to, to have a continuation of our previous conversation, but also to f- to uh, answer a couple of listener questions um, from that previous conversation. So. Um I'll introduce Dr. Michael Greenberg here in a minute, but um, uh, so you'll hear me throughout the episode, and I mentioned this maybe once or twice, that um, he has offered as well uh, in uh, in the future to answer, to be back on the show again. So if you have questions about rumination-focused OCD, or excuse me, rumination-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, um, uh, you can send a message to me over at, uh, excuse me, rumination-focused ERP. I will get this right one day, I promise you. Ugh. Anyways, so uh, you can send me a message over at fearcastpodcast.com or again over at Instagram. Um, if you want, uh, well, uh, those questions, uh, uh, typically if you send them in as an audio question, they do get bumped up to the list or bumped up to the top of the list. Um, but I'm going to be accumulating all these questions uh, for Dr. Greenberg when I have him on again. So um, if you haven't, uh, listen to the previous episode with Dr. Greenberg. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. I'll, I'll put a link to it as well. Um, additionally, so he mentions a couple articles. I have them linked on the episode page over at fearcastpodcast.com. Um, and uh, he also mentions that by the time this episode airs, he has also dumped a whole bunch of new content on his website to further flesh out some of his ideas about rumination-focused ERP and about treatment for OCD. Uh, so uh, I'm going to put a link to his website and a couple of those articles as well. So uh, uh, please go over and check those out. Um, it, will, it, will, it will be eye-opening, I, I promise you. So um, uh, why don't I introduce him and we'll get on with the episode. So Dr. Michael Greenberg is a licensed psychologist specializing in the treatment of OCD, and he's the director of the OCD Associates, a practice specializing in rumination-focused ERP. Dr. Greenberg is a, uh, a thought leader in, uh, in rumination and how rumination impacts uh, the, the development process and reinforcement of obsessive-compulsive disorder. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Dr. Michael Greenberg. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. For today, I have on Dr. Michael Greenberg uh, to talk about uh, or to continue our conversation about uh, his approach in treating OCD and anxiety disorders. Um, and, uh, and we're going to ha- actually have him answer a couple of questions from uh, from some of you listeners who have emailed me in questions from uh, from our last talk. So, um, uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah. Well, um, so the first I wanted to address, um, I, I think that we had a, a miscommunication from our from the end of our last uh, meeting. Uh, at the end of our last meeting, I believe that there was a, we, we didn't get to everything that we wanted to talk about or everything about um, uh, Michael's approach. So we, uh, you know, so I said, hey, I'd love to have you back on. And I never contacted him to get him back on. So um, I just wanted to address that, that if anybody was out there going, Gosh, when is uh, when is Michael going to get back on the show? He's back on the show now, and I just really appreciate his uh, his willingness to come back and uh, continue this uh, dialogue. Um, so we, we we left off a, a little bit last time on just what his approach looks like with um, uh, with exposures and using exposure and response prevention as you know the typical the typical approach that we would do with um, uh, with OCD treatment. The average the 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 majority of the OCD therapists would be doing would be cognitive behavior therapy, exposure and response prevention. And I know that, um, Michael, you have a, 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 a different take on it. So for, for perhaps new listeners, would you be able to give us a, a little bit of a, an overview of what your approach is and how you, um, how your approach maybe, maybe di- differ from a, a typical uh, ERP OCD model? Yeah, absolutely. I'll try to be, uh, I'll try to, I'll try to, get the really consolidated version of it. Okay. So um, this approach started with the realization that, to my understanding, when somebody is anxious, it's because they're ruminating. And that rumination is a controllable behavior because it's analytical thinking. How do I solve a problem? What do I do about this? Is this true, etc.? And that if one stops ruminating, their subjective experience of anxiety goes away. In that moment, I don't, I'm not necessarily talking about that that person will never have other similar moments, but in that moment, the person can control their experience of anxiety. <clears throat> so seeing anxiety as the consequence of a behavior indicates that it wouldn't be subject to habituation. In other words, if let's say somebody were eating uh, candy bars and as a consequence of eating the candy bars, their stomach were hurting, we wouldn't say that they should keep eating candy bars and that eventually they'll habituate to their stomach hurting. We would say that what they have to do to stop their stomach from hurting is to stop doing the behavior that's causing it to hurt. So therefore the question becomes, if you discard the idea of habituation and you discard the idea that you can habituate to anxiety, what does exposure then look like? In other words, what does ERP look like if you totally stand of habituation? Now, notably, there have been other approaches that have focused on other aspects of ERP, like, for example, inhibitory learning focuses on learning, but inhibitory learning and these other approaches don't sanitize it of habituation. They say habituation is in there too, but but then we can also emphasize other pieces. And in from my perspective, And I think that having habituation in the picture changes and confuses how exposure is done. And so rumination-focused ERP starts with the assumption that you can't habituate to anxiety and then asks what exposure would look like in light of that fact. Of completely removing the rumination. What happens if you completely remove the idea of habituating to anxiety or desensitizing to anxiety? Mm-hmm. By the way, before I go further in explaining what that looks like, I just want to address people who will say, well, what about these studies where, for example, rats habituate to whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say that uh, I think that a lot of these conversations conflate anxiety and fear. 
and that those are two different things. So for example, I, I, I would define anxiety, well, first of all, as somebody with a history of OCD, I would say I know the difference, right? And to me, the difference is um, spiraling mentally versus fear as something that you feel physically. So for example, if I am on a hike and I'm um, like on the ledge where I could fall, mm-hmm. I feel terrified, but I wouldn't say I feel anxious. I'm not worried about it. I'm not, nothing's going on cognitively. I don't think about it when I'm not in that acute situation. So I'm terrified, but I'm not anxious. And those to me, and I think to people with anxiety disorders are two different subjective experiences. So just to sort of footnote that. Okay. But returning to the question of what it looks like. So my answer to that question is that the replacement for habituation is agency and restoring a person's sense of control over what they're doing. So I would define a compulsion as something that a person feels like they don't have a choice about. Mm. Even though in reality they do. And the, the metaphor or um, analogy that I would use for thinking about this is like having a gun to your head. Mm-hmm. If somebody's holding a gun to your head and saying, do this or I'll shoot you, do you have a choice? The answer is of, on some level, it, you're so terrified that it feels like you don't have a choice, but in reality, on a physical level, you do have a choice. Mm. And so when I say that people have a choice over compulsions, I'm not, I don't mean to invalidate, again, from personal experience, I don't mean to invalidate how compelled a person feels by their fear. You're terrified. It doesn't feel like you have a choice because of what you're afraid might happen. Um, but in reality, objectively, you do have a choice. And so the purpose of exposure from that perspective is not habituation, but to restore a person's sense of agency and to make them aware that they have a choice about doing or not doing this behavior. So sometimes that requires teaching them how to not do something like rumination. You actually have to teach somebody how to stop doing that to restore their sense of agency. But more broadly, it means that by doing exposures and response prevention, by practicing doing things that have been avoided and not doing things that a person doesn't want to do, namely compulsions, that we can show a person that they have the ability to control these behaviors, and then they use that restored sense of agency to eliminate those symptoms. Mm. So uh, just to sort of summarize, the focus is on restoring agency. And what's, what's cool about this model is that it vastly narrows down what is done as exposure. So people who um, are practitioners of exposure know that this model sounds very simple in theory, like, oh, just exposed to what they're afraid of. But then the nuts and bolts of how you do that are really not as clear. Mm-hmm. How you do it, how long you do it, how many different ways you should do it. Um, and so this model um, really narrows down what you do as exposure and how you do it. And it says there are only two types of exposure. Doing things that you are avoiding and doing things that are triggers while practicing not doing a compulsion. So engaging and in with both the triggers. Engaging with the trigger, but only for the purpose of, of response prevention. In other words, the only purpose of engaging with the trigger is to show a person that they can control doing the compulsion. So in other words, the purpose is not habituating to the trigger. The, pur- the purpose is restoring their agency around doing whatever the compulsion is. And so this is actually a much uh, simpler model that takes a lot of the style and guesswork out of how to do exposure and therefore can yield a much more precise treatment in addition to being a, a 
relatively painless treatment. There's no more doing things that are extreme. There's no more doing things you don't want to do. In fact, according to this model, only the patient gets to define what is and is not a compulsion. Mm. A therapist can, can give their perspective, but at the end of the day, it's the patient's subjective experience of actually wanting or not wanting to do something that makes something a symptom or a compulsion. And so there's no um, there's no need for like a psychoed where we're convincing the patient to do things they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. In fact, what we're saying is, no, I want to show you that you can do the things that you do want to do and that you can not do the things that you don't want to do. And so there's no power struggle and there's no buy-in and it's a very it's a very easy sell. There is no sell. So a good example of this would be um, just in terms of this new definition. Mm-hmm. And with this, I'll close. If let's say, for example, a person um, likes to use a paper towel to open the door of a restroom, mm-hmm. a public room. So according to this model, a therapist couldn't say whether that were compulsive or not. You see a lot of questions on the forums for OCD therapists asking whether something is or is not OCD or where the line is or what's normal. Mm-hmm. So this model would say that's all irrelevant. The question is, what does the patient actually want to do? So if the patient says, I prefer to use a paper towel to open the door, just like I prefer to wash my hands after I use the bathroom, mm-hmm. right? Like that doors that I want to do that, then that would not be considered a compulsion and it wouldn't be a target for ERP. Mm-hmm. Whereas the person says like, I, I don't want to do that. I feel like I don't have a choice or I'm, I'm just scared of what would happen. Then that would be a different story. Mm-hmm. Right? And of course you can be creative about that. You, maybe you have a person who's not sure and you might say, well, let's do it without the paper towel to establish that you have a choice. And then from that place of agency, you can make a decision about whether or not you want to do this going forward. Right. Yeah. That was a long one. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, very, it's a very, I mean, to, to use the term, it's a very values-based focus. It's you, you, you do the things that you want to do. Well, it depends what you mean by values. I think a lot of times when people are talking about values, they're talking in like what a person thinks they should do. And I would say there's actually an important distinction between what a person wants to do, not in terms of what a person, in terms of feeling, what do I actually want to do now versus what's consistent with my values. It could be that what I want to do now is watch TV, right? Or it could be that what I want to do now, or that's, or it could be something where values are irrelevant. Like, do I actually want to go to this party or do I not want to go to this party? Do I actually, you know, want to, whatever it might be. So I think that um, I would say it's actually distinct from values. And I I personally do not think that values have a place in treating OCD. I think that people with OCD are so um, preoccupied with ideals and the ideal way to be and the right way to do things. Mm -hmm. And that treatment for OCD actually needs to move them away from what they think they should be doing ideally and move them towards authentically themselves and what they actually want and what they actually want to do. So I wouldn't call it, you You could call it values, but I would distinguish between what I think of as values and restoring a person's sense of agency and authentic choice. Yeah. And kind of what they, what, what they, what they truly want out of life and, and who it is that they, that they want to be not should be, could be, but it's the, the, the person that they're, they would like to be. I, I think that that could be the case, but I think for, from a like from a psychoanalytic perspective, there's a distinction between like ideals and like what a person thinks they should be, mm-hmm. and like the self. Mm-hmm. And uh, people with OCD live like, for example, there could be a person who thinks I want to be uh, 
a really successful lawyer. Like that's who my mother was and that's who I want to be. Mm-hmm. And I want to be, um, whatever, but maybe authentically, like that's not them. They hate it. Right. And so maybe, maybe growth is tapping into like that, their actual feelings about it, as opposed to what they think their feelings should be. Mm-hmm. And I think that for a lot of obsessive compulsives, that's very challenging because we've navigated the world thinking about what we're supposed to do, who we're supposed to be. Um, and there's often not a lot of tuning into our authentic experiences of what we want and what we like. I think that's very challenging for a lot of us. Um, so I like, I understand what you're saying and that could be a way of, that could be what a person wants to Mm be. I would just distinguish between like an ideal, what a should versus an authentic experience of this is me. This is what I actually want to do. This is what I don't actually want to do. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I guess tell us a little bit more then about if if you're, if you're working with a client and then putting, putting together with the client, what, what um, exposures would be, um, what role does, um, what what roles do in vivo exposures have? And do you do imaginal exposures as, as part of the process? Mm -hmm. So I'll answer, I think there are three parts to that. So the first question was, how do you put together a list of targets for exposure? So what's nice about this model is it's incredibly simple. Mm -hmm. Make me a list of all the things that you avoid that you wish you could do, but you feel like you can't do. Make me a list of the things that are triggers and that's it, right? That takes about three minutes and we have a list of all of our targets for exposure. It's super simple. Exactly. Also helpful for like self-help. Um, there is a worksheet on the website that people can use for this. It's honestly not necessary because it's so simple. Like, again, like just like there's no psychoed in this model. I know some people have therapies where there was like multiple sessions on psychoed. So, so to this model, there's also no like, like designing a hierarchy. It's like, I mean, that either is, but it would take about like five minutes. Yeah. Is there for, for your model, are, are you, are you ranking them from easiest to hardest or is this, is it kind of a choose your own adventure? Here's your big giant list. Which one are we going to go get? I don't, I don't, this model is like, doesn't have an opinion about that. Like, okay. I think I personally like to be more organic, so I don't rank things, mm-hmm. but it's up to the patient what they want to work on. So at any point so presumably there's an automatic ranking of like doing the things they're prepared to do mm-hmm. so i wouldn't i don't think it's wrong to rank i'm fine with that i don't think it messes anything up All i don't right. think it's against right but um but i i personally don't do that just because stylistically i'm not as uh i'd like to be less structured fair enough fair enough so what? do you want me to ask other questions yes please so then you ask what role exposures play in vivo exposures and you ask about imaginals. So in vivo exposures are again, for the per- always for the purpose of restoring agency. And then the person has to take that and then use that restored sense of agency to then not do those things or to do those things in the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. So when you're working from a habituation perspective, there could be inherent value or, or uh, there is a belief that there is inherent value in the exposure itself. So for example, you believe that you're desensitizing to something. So it's as if doing the exposure somehow makes the OCD weaker in some theoretical sense. This model does not endorse that at all and says, if you do the exposure in session, it doesn't do anything, but show you that you have a choice. 
and then you then you use that knowledge that you have a choice to go do and not do things in the rest of your life mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah, you, you can choose whether or not you're going to engage with rumination, engage with avoidance or co- other compulsive behaviors, or you can you can po- positively re-engage or positively engage in things that you actually want to do. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then in terms of imaginals, I think that um, the only, well, the only reason that you would do an imaginal script per se, meaning going over, like, imagining something bad happening is is for the idea of habituation i think that imaginal i don't know the history of this but i would imagine that imaginal scripts probably were brought into exposure work to fill a gap which was okay if we're if our idea is that we expose people to the things that they're scared of how do we expose people to getting cancer in the future how do we expose people to going to hell how do we expose people to you know, their marriage falling apart. Mm-hmm. Like we can't have exposures to that. So I think that that's my guess about where imaginal exposures came in. Mm-hmm. And this model, um, because there's no such thing as habituation to anxiety, and that's not the purpose of the treatment, again, from the perspective of this model, um, there's no role for imaginal exposures. There's no point to them. We don't do them. I would add that a lot of people... Sometimes imaginal exposures, absent response prevention of compulsive rumination can be really harmful. Like we have lots of people who come in with, let's say like a good old harm OCD and like what their well-intentioned old traditionally trained DRP therapist did is have them listen over and over to themselves, to recordings of, you know, stories of killing, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't, it made them miserable. It didn't do anything for them and they were still ruminating. So in the worst cases, it can actually, you know, uh, contribute to rumination in addition to making the person miserable. Um, but even if it's not used in a harmful way in this model, it has no place. So there it's, there are totally no imaginal exposures. There are certain things that people accomplish with an imaginal exposure that are not habituation, but in this model, those things, I would say those things can always be accomplished in a different way. So for example, if you would say, oh no, we're gonna do an imaginal exposure to practice not ruminating, I would say, well, you don't need a whole imaginal script for that purpose. You can literally just like imagine something for a moment and then refrain from ruminating about it. Or if somebody said, no, the purpose is to see all of the different things that would have to go wrong for something bad to actually happen, mm-hmm. like a I would say, that's valid, but that's not an exposure. That's a cognitive strategy. And you can do that, but not an imaginal exposure. Mm-hmm. Do those cognitive strategies have a, have a place in this model of yours? Not formally, but they're not, they're not inconsistent yeah, with and, the model. Hypothetical. Okay. Uh, this model assumes that there's a whole lot of therapy that goes on around the skeleton of the treatment. Yeah. In other words, that like, there's a conversation, I mean, the, uh, in reality, I, I've spent the last couple of years delving into the psychoanalytic perspective on OCT. So I do this model in the context of a much more, for people who are balking at the word psychoanalysis, basically, it, it means basically a focus on emotional experiences in the context of relationships mm-hmm. and emotional factors that are contributing to symptoms. People think it's like crazy stuff. It's not. It's actually very humanistic, person-centered what is a person feeling? Their conflict. What is a person scared to feel? Um, so, I believe in delivering this model in the context of an emotionally, relationally focused 
perspective on what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. So there's room for a lot of different techniques and, and interpretations along the way. And um, that cognitive strategy is, is a valid one that I think could, could have a, a place of a treatment. Fair, fair enough. Um, would, would you mind speaking, and I, we'll get to the questions here in, in a moment, would you mind speaking a little bit to how, how you help someone stop ruminating? You know, that's kind of like the, 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 the magic in all of it. Um, but are there, are there some, some kind of basic tips that you would give some listeners on, on, how, on how to do this? Yeah, I think that when we're talking about issues that people have with ruminating, we're talking about two different types of issues maybe three. There are technical issues. A person literally is like cognitively doing something that's not working. Like for example, they are trying to push away the thought or they are um, using distraction in an unhelpful way. Those technical issues are actually pretty simple to solve. Like what does it mean to stop ruminating? How do you do that? And I think those are pretty thoroughly addressed in the article called how to stop ruminating. Okay. I'll I'll add to that if that's, if that's all right. Yeah, of course. So that's, I think, like part one. The next thing is justifications, Mm -hmm. which is I know how to stop ruminating, but I am not making a choice to stop because, for example, I think that, you know, that would make me a bad person if I had these thoughts, but didn't try to think my way out of them. Or I um, need to figure this out because... XYZ. In other words, a person knows how to stop ruminating, but they're having trouble because they're justifying it. Mm-hmm. And so the work is to challenge the justifications and to, to look at whether the whether it's actually working, whether it's actually helpful, whether it comes at other costs, mm-hmm. sort of analysis. So those are, I think, the two prime on a CBT level, those are the two types of issues somebody would have a technical issue or a justification issue mm-hmm. you could call it a justification issue a metacognitive issue and then the last category which is what i'm really interested in now i'm about to by the time this is this podcast is on the air these articles will be up um i'm about to publish a bunch of articles that start to talk about a psychoanalytic perspective on why a person is ruminating mm-hmm. and um these would look at like the emotional factors that are driving it. So I'll just give one, one quick example. Okay. That'd be great. Yeah. So let's say somebody has intrusive thoughts of, I shouldn't say intrusive thoughts. Let's say a person is ruminating about is preoccupied with whether they want to kill their child, let's say. Okay. So every case is different and I'm not saying one interpretation is correct for everybody, but one possible interpretation from a psychoanalytic perspective is that, Really what's going on is that this is a person who struggles with feeling angry feelings towards a loved one or aggressive feelings towards a loved one. Mm-hmm. They, for some reason, from their own upbringing, are scared to feel those feelings or think that it's unacceptable to feel those feelings towards a loved one. And so um, those unacknowledged, unacceptable, but healthy, normal feelings of anger or healthy, normal feelings of aggression are disowned they're unconscious the person can't acknowledge them or validate them or accept them and so they come out they get expressed in this symptom of being preoccupied with whether i want to kill them in other words they get expressed in this disguised symptomatic way mm-hmm. but really what's really going on is that the person just can't tolerate feeling angry at a loved one or angry at their kid or sometimes wishing their kid would go away which would be a a normal, healthy experience. 
just to clarify, because I know how easily triggered the obsessive compulsives are present company included. Uh-huh. So to clarify, we're not saying that the person really does want to kill their child. We're not saying that that's the underlying feeling. We're saying the opposite. We're saying that that's a metaphor for the underlying feeling and that the underlying feeling is a healthy, normal experience of anger that this person, for whatever reason, is scared to allow themselves to feel towards the child. And is manifesting as a, a, a quote, to use the word intrusive thought, but it's, it's manifesting as a thought. It's manifesting as a thought. It's manifesting as a, a, a uh, like a metaphoric symptom, a symbolic symptom, exactly. So adding this sort of leg to the treatment means um, in addition to looking at how to stop ruminating and in addition to looking at the person's conscious justifications for ruminating, we would also be looking at the emotional dynamics that are informing what's going on and addressing those on a different level. And this is, um, I think, um, what was... There, can, I'll, I'll kind of take a sidebar for a second. There, there's an idea, there's a psychoanalytic idea called an omnipotent fantasy. And an omnipotent fantasy, in short, is if only I, it's a fantasy that I can exert control over something that's really not subject to my control. So if only I, for example, if only I am, if only I pray hard enough, my mother won't die. Or if only I behave well enough, my mother will love me as much as she loves my sister. Mm. Or if only I'm a good enough student, my father will, uh, you know, be proud of me. What, whatever it might, what, something, something that I don't necessarily have control over mm-hmm. that I imagine if only I can do X, Y, or Z. If, here's another example from personal experience. Mm-hmm. If, only I, if only I eat just the right foods, I can remediate some health problem mm-hmm. that is like unclear if that could actually be controlled with the diet, yeah. right? Um, so I think that my, I think that all all ERP, um, but, and, but also my version of RF ERP from a couple of years ago is to a certain extent an omnipotent fantasy. It says, if only I don't ruminate enough, this whole problem will go away. Mm -hmm. And what's tricky about an omnipotent fantasy is that it's really easy to believe it because Let's say if I back then felt like, well, I'm feeling great, and then I would have a dip where I wasn't feeling great, I'd say, well, that's because I'm ruminating. And so that, so it's, the answer is still don't ruminate. The problem is just that I'm not doing that well enough. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's sort of like the equivalent of if somebody, and the point is that it misses a lot of what's going on. It, it, says, it doesn't ask, well, what's driving that rumination? What else is going on? What else is going on? So I think it's sort of the metaphor I use to talk about this is it's sort of like if somebody were um, overweight because they eat too much, and I'm not saying that's always why people are overweight, but let's say in this example, somebody is overweight because they eat too much. And so our solution for them is, well, just eat less. Well, on a technical level, that is technically true, but it's also a totally asinine solution to the problem because it wipes out so much. But well, why is this person compelled to eat? Mm-hmm. So. I do still totally endorse the rumination-focused approach to ERP, mm-hmm. and I do endorse that people historically have not realized, and people do not realize how much control they have over rumination. You truly can stop ruminating. That's true, and you really can control your experience of anxiety when you feel anxious by making a clear commitment to not ruminating. But I think it's important to say that that is not the whole picture, and I think to me a couple of years ago, I was seeing that as the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And 
now I see that as sort of like weed whacking and you can do a really thorough job of cleaning up that field. But then you have to wonder why is this a field where there, where these weeds grow? Right. So going back to, and that's where the psychoanalytic piece has filled in a lot for me and also, also helped me to let go of my own omnipotent fantasy around this. So, um, um, what was I going to say? Going back to that example of Harmo CD. Yeah. So I would say absolutely. That person is ruminating all day. They're saying they're having intrusive thoughts, but really they are ruminating mm-hmm. and they really need to stop. And if they stop, they will feel so much better and they can control their symptoms. But then I think it's also the case that we need to look at what feelings are being disowned that now get manifested as these symptoms. What is the conflict here? Why is this person having these intrusive thoughts? Yeah. Why why is the experience of anger towards a loved one so threatening or so terrible that they need to be disowned or or, uh, uh, subdued in some way? Or what other contextual factors emotionally, relationally are producing these symptoms? Why are the, why did these weeds grow in this field? Mm. Trying to address it, trying to get it by the roots. Yeah. In, 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 in a sense, I don't know if this would be the, the correct term. It's, it's more of a holistic uh, approach. Yeah, I think treating. it's a more holistic approach. Yeah. Okay. And I think that, um, yeah. Okay. When, when I was only practicing from a CBT perspective, I didn't, it's not, I didn't, even see these dynamics because I wasn't trained to see them. Right. So I didn't have to treat them because I couldn't identify that they were there. Mm-hmm. And um, once, yeah. So to somebody who says, well, you know, well, I don't know that this person doesn't have that problem. I would say, well, it's possible that just like me, a person might not be able to see that this person is having this problem. Like, right. for example, somebody might say my childhood was great, you know, nothing, no issue, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, and, and I would say, well, there, therein, is the problem, right? This person clearly ha- like has trouble acknowledging the things about their childhood that weren't ideal. Right. There's always For, there's always something. Always something, because right. you're we're raised by real people. Uh, unfortunately, right? Unfortunately, right. I'm just thinking about how I'm I'm going to be screwing up my own kids at some point, probably already. But, you know, I think that's just a reality for everybody. It's the name of the game, man. Well, <clears throat> well, I, I, I appreciate all that. We, we have so we, we got a couple of questions from um, from some listeners that uh, that I, I'd love to go over real quick and just kind of see see what your thoughts are. These are so these are questions uh, directly from from a couple of listeners about um, or in response to our the, the last time um, um, Michael was on. And um, by the way, it, with uh, with the the new articles uh, that, uh, that that Michael's going to publish, if you listeners have questions about that new information, and I'll, I'll try to put a link to that. Uh, once those are up um, on the episode page, um, if you have uh, if you have questions for um, uh, for Michael about those, send them on in. Go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can send me a message over there. You can send them to Instagram as well, uh, and we'll um, uh, you know if if he's if he's willing to come back on to answer some of those, I, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear him. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So we'll jump into the first question. First question comes from George. He says, um, I asked about depersonalization, uh, derealization a while back, but listening to your interview with uh, Dr. Michael Greenberg on rumination uh, got me interested 
excuse me, got me interested in seeing DP, DPDR from this perspective. Yes, DPDR is there. The sensations of unreality, the uh, existential thoughts, uh, but there is also a checking for these things, which I guess uh, Greenberg would consider the rumination part. I never thought I was ruminating with DPDR, and so I never thought that I had uh, any agency in it, uh, like I was, like I was uh, along, for, uh, like I was just along for the ride. That quote, "along for the ride" philosophy actually helped me a lot, and I credit uh, that to your podcast and a lot of the ACT stuff out there. Claire, uh, Claire Weeks, I've never heard of her. I don't know who she's she the is. Panic. What's that? She's the panic. She's a panic person. Oh. From, I think. Oh, okay. Um, and then uh, they go on to say, um, but could you speak a little, uh, could you speak a little about whether uh, sometimes we actually help maintain the DPDR, the depersonalization, derealization by checking if it's still there, the rumination component in DPDR, uh, mm-hmm. maybe we have some agency in. So would you be able to speak a little bit to uh, the depersonalization? Yes, absolutely. And I'll start by saying that DPDR is like very, it's an issue that's very close to my heart because somebody I love a lot has really serious uh, DP. So I've like read a lot about this and thought a lot about this. Not not that I'm an expert, but it is definitely something I'm familiar with. So um, I think that in DP, there is often uh, a sensory motor, what I would call a sensory motor component, which is exactly what George is describing. There is paying attention to it, directing attention to it, trying to figure out how to make it go away, trying to figure out whether it'll ever go away. In other words, ruminating about it, avoiding certain situations because it would trigger these feelings. So I do think there's absolutely that layer to things. And I think that working on things from that, I'm going to call it from a sensory motor perspective. Mm -hmm. And by, by that, I mean, any time where the symptom itself is the focus of the person's problem, does that make sense? Where the person is preoccupied by the symptom itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I do think that working on things in terms of differentiating between awareness and attention and not checking and not ruminating about it can make things a lot better. And I think for some people can, uh, I think, okay, let me put that to the side for a second. Okay. But at the same time, dissociation is not just the consequence of ruminating. And again, from an analytic perspective, it's serving a defensive purpose. So the person might need to understand why they dissociate in a certain moment, you know, what emotional function, if you will, that's serving for them and addressing it on that level can also be essential. So I think that the balance of these two things, how much of this problem can be addressed? I think you could have somebody who has DP who's really not ruminating. They're not, they're not doing that. They just have depersonalization. Um, and I think you could have somebody who really is just creating this experience for themselves by ruminating. In other words, there really isn't too much there on its own. And it's mostly just that they're constantly checking their experience of do I feel real or am I looking at myself doing this thing? And that's really generating their experience. So I think those would be the two extremes. For one of those people working on it from a sensory motor perspective would be really helpful. And for one of them, it wouldn't be. And then I think there's everything in between. And so I think working on things on a CBT level, the sensory motor stuff um, could be could definitely be very helpful for a lot of people, mm-hmm. but may not be the whole picture or may not be or maybe a really small, maybe not even any part of the picture. That was maybe not the clearest way to say that, but I hope it made sense. I think that that is a layer. I think there's a sensory motor layer for a lot of people mm-hmm. when it comes to DRGR, and I think it can be helpful, but I'm not sure that it'll, I don't think that it'll solve the whole problem for most people with that problem. Mm-hmm. 
I should say both. I don't think it'll solve the whole problem for everyone. Cause I don't know what the numbers are. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So in, 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 in a sense, it's, you know, there, there, there can be a, some sensation that they are experiencing, but they're just hyper-focused on that feeling and then engaging with that rumination and, and that's kind of holistic or not holistically, um, kind of com- completing the puzzle, uh, to create the yeah. sense of depersonalization. Exactly. So, in a, or put another way, there's a psychodynamic level. I mean, I use the terms psychoanalytic and psychodynamic interchangeably. Some people don't, just to be clear. So, there's a psychodynamic level, like what's going on emotionally? What purpose does this depersonalization serve? You know, why are they experiencing it? Right. And then there's the cognitive behavioral level. And so, you can address it in terms of thoughts and behaviors, but you might be left with another layer underneath. Right. Also, he asked about a long further ride and act. And I just want to say that for all my criticisms of act, I do understand that it can be, I think it can be helpful to people to a certain extent while also keeping them stuck at a certain point. So for example, if I'm having intrusive thoughts of, let's say again, harming someone, or if I'm ruminating about harming someone, learning to distance myself from that could make things somewhat better, mm-hmm. but it won't actually solve the problem. As long as I don't, re- and it can also undermine my, if I say, oh, these thoughts are just there, I can't do anything about it. Right. Right. And so it can undermine my sense of agency. It can prevent me from getting all the way better. So when somebody says, well, actually helped me, mm-hmm. I believe them, but I don't think that that's, um, I don't think that that contradicts my concerns about act. I think it can help people to a certain extent while also undermining the agency or keeping them stuck at a certain point. Right. Right, and and I think that's that that is a that's a very fair, uh, a, I think a very fair assessment of act. I mean, you know, you can you can say, well, there are a lot of things that we need to accept in life, and th- some things that suck. Yes, and we can also do some things that can try to fix those. I like that. That's a good way to say it. You know, yeah, that's the I'll, I'll have I have that conversation a lot, specifically about relationship OCD or that you know you can. You can have genuine relationship problems and responding to those in a rumination OCD type of way. Can you also, can you one, address the rumination, compulsive behavior, et cetera, while also having conversation with your partner about those problems? Maybe have them close the kitchen cabinets for once, whatever it might be. So I think that's actually my problem, not someone else's. I can leave I'm, I'm the one who leaves them open. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we all do something. All right. Well, I, I appreciate that. So in, in the sake of time, why don't we jump on to this, uh, this second one? The second one's a little bit longer. I try to uh, I try to read them clearly, but also quickly. I don't know. It's a real problem. Anyways, so this question comes from Natalie Nelly. Wait, wait. I got that backward. Nelly Natalie. It also helps if I read. That's a problem. Um, Nellie's question is, <clears throat> I've been in ERP with a, with a different therapist for about a month now. They respect, uh, they, they respect Dr. Greenberg's work, but I'm so curious uh, that almost uh, none of his work talks about uncertainty. Also, uh, he made it sound like intrusive thoughts are just a symptom slash byproduct of OCD, and I feel like I would disagree with him. Does, anyone, or, uh, does anybody have intrusive thoughts? Yes, but if someone has been experiencing an obsession about uh, for X amount of time, isn't their brain kind of mass-producing intrusive thoughts, um, almost like a habit? Question mark. Uh, they go on to say, uh, I, I, I get that over time this can go down, or this can go down, but it seems like intrusive thoughts um, are a byproduct of OCD. I agree with his five multiple choices. Uh, we shouldn't give uh, into attention, rumination, or we shouldn't give it attention, uh, otherwise known as rumination, uh, or uh, or analyze. But that doesn't mean they won't come up. So really, 
uh, that's just an intrusive thought. What do you think? What do you think he'd say about meeting intrusive thoughts, uh, intrusive thoughts, feelings uh, with, quote, maybe, maybe not, or, quote, um, I, I'm, I'm just or I'm not going to solve this right now. This has been instrumental for me in my recovery uh, and learning and leaning into uncertainty. But I almost felt like he was just saying that uh, saying that uh, that was attention. Very curious to know your thoughts on these questions. So this is actually this is the question that uh, that motivated me to emailing you again. I thought, well, I could try to answer for him, but why don't I just ask him? And yeah. eventually, I will learn how to read. So mm-hmm. that will be cleared up. Anyways, so um, Michael, what are your thoughts on that? About the uh, yes, go ahead. Okay, so I want to reflect back what I think the two questions were here, and yes. just make sure that, that we're both that I'm not missing anything. That's fine. I think she's asking two questions. She's asking number one about uncertainty and like embracing uncertainty, and mm-hmm. the, I don't talk about that, which is a very astute observation. And um, she's also asking about um, like. I wasn't sure if she was asking, like, do do people, I think she's saying, yes, people have intrusive thoughts, people, thoughts occur to people, and yet people with OCD have more intrusive thoughts. I think that's what she was saying. And then she went back to the first point, which was about, like, what a colleague, I was in touch with a few years ago, called, like, non-engagement responses. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe, maybe not. Okay. So I'll tack on to the first one. Uncertainty and, um, maybe, maybe not statements, part one, and part two, um, like, how, how do, do, do we have more intrusive thoughts than other people? Sure. Okay. So, um, the first one, I, I'll do the first one first. So, I think that, um, I'll answer the easy question first, which is non-engagement responses, or maybe, maybe not, I totally, um, don't like because they're literally engagement like, <laughs> like they're literally yeah. so that, that's number one um but on a passive level of course people with OCD have to tolerate uncertainties right but there's a difference between not i would see that as a passive process and that tolerating uncertainty is about not doing something to try to make things certain not trying to figure it out right now mm-hmm it's not an active process. You don't have to actively try to tolerate uncertainty. Not to mention that, like, what does that even mean? Using the example we've been using all day, like, okay, let's say I have intrusive thoughts, or I'm, I, I don't know why I keep saying that. I just see, see how easy it is to slip in. Very easy. Let's say I'm somebody who's preoccupied with whether I'm going to um, kill my kid or whomever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, am I supposed to go? Am I supposed to be okay with like maybe I'll kill my kid, right? Of course that we're not really tolerating uncertainty about that, and not I don't like the way I said that people are going to get triggered. They get triggered by everything. Anyway, people, um, people are going to get triggered. You and I, I, I did a whole episode on on trigger warnings. We can't control what we're going to get triggered okay. by. Let me be clear. I'm not like to the person sitting at home who has harm OCD who's like, no, but I don't have harm OCD. I actually feel this. I actually want to. They don't understand. Let me just say to them. Don't worry, you're not going to hurt anybody. And everybody who has OCD is having the same experience as you. Nobody's having intrusive thoughts that have little labels on them that say, I'm an OCD thought. Okay. Unfortunately. But that's, a, that's a sidebar for, for those who were accidentally triggered by what I said. Okay. So 
like a person is not it, it's so silly to say that a person is going to actually sit with uncertainty about whether they're going to kill someone mm-hmm. not to mention that they're not going to kill someone like that's not what that means it's not the meaning of the symptom like we we're not concerned we're not sitting with uncertainty when our patients tell us these things so I don't think that it's really relevant in a lot of cases. I think it's kind of misguided. But moreover, I think it's a distraction from what's really going on. So for example, like, um, what's a good example? Let's say somebody has relationship OCD and they're, they're preoccupied with whether they're in the right relationship. Mm-hmm. Right? So if we say to them, well, you have to tolerate not knowing if you're in the right relationship, mm-hmm. well, that is colluding with the underlying problem, which is that this person thinks that there is a right relationship, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to like, there are just different relationships and pluses and minuses to each one and the ones that we choose to to be in. Right. So what? by telling that person that they have to tolerate the uncertainty about whether they're in the right relationship, it's not, it's way too like clunky it doesn't really get to the heart of the issue and it can actually collude with the underlying problem. Whereas I would say, again, going back to the psychoanalytic perspective, I would say what this person really needs to be tolerating isn't uncertainty. They really need to be tolerating is their ambivalence. In other words, their ability to hold negative feelings towards a loved one, to feel disappointed with someone they are also excited to be with. Mm -hmm. And so just talking in terms of uncertainty is, I think, sort of consistent with a lot of how ERP is done, which is just not a lot of nuance, really minimal training and trying to squeeze all of these human beings with their complicated, personal, individual human experiences into just a few boxes of like, you know, anxiety, habituation, uncertainty. Mm-hmm. As like, What is going on for this person? Or going back to the the harm OCD, having them tolerate like the uncertainty that maybe they really will kill someone, which is of course, first of all, silly. And second of all, not real. Um, but it also, again, misses the mark. This person doesn't need to tolerate uncertainty about whether they're going to kill someone. Meaning at some, at some level they need to, in the sense that they need to refrain from trying to figure it out. Right. So it, it is baked in that they're tolerating uncertainty, but I wouldn't say that that's what they need to be working on tolerating uncertainty what they need to be working on perhaps. And again, I'm not saying this is every case, every case is the same thing, but perhaps what this person needs to work on is tolerating angry or hateful feelings towards a loved one mm-hmm. or towards a child. And so to focus on uncertainty is for, is like ir- irrelevant, not irrelevant. It, it really, it's a side it, effect. It, it, yeah. It's not the point. It's kind of like, it's, it's a one size fits all, not the point distraction from what might really be going on. So again, I want to reiterate that at the end of the day, if that person is sitting with the uncertainty, because that's the experience of having OCD, that is the experience. But what our focus should be on is not ruminating, not trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so do you see, it's, it's subtly different. It's not seeking certainty, but it's not actively saying, yes, I'm not sure. Yes, I'm not sure if I'm going to kill them. It's, it's just saying, I'm not going to actively try to figure it out. So it's sort of like a passive, it's the byproduct of not doing something as opposed to something you're supposed to actively endorse. You're supposed to somehow actually actively be okay with not knowing X, Y, or Z. And this also gets misused in other ways too. Like for example, people who are like, well, and I've heard people say, well, nobody is sure of their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. That's not true. 
people are people are that's not true at all most people are pretty clear on their sexual orientation mm-hmm. they don't have ocd about it mm-hmm. that's not the same thing there's ambiguity to it right mm-hmm. there 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 can be i mean not ambiguity meaning kinsey show that people are usually not 100 nuance to it right there can be nuance might not be black or white but most people don't walk around not being sure of their sexual orientation so when we say to someone you know oh well you have to your problem is that you can't tolerate not knowing what your sexual orientation is i don't know i hope not too many people would actually say that but i've heard things to that effect i think it's again really misguided like no like that's not the goal the goal would be for a person to ultimately get a sense of what their sexual orientation is um which might might require tolerating uncertainty in the meantime or when they're triggered and they feel like all of a sudden they're sure it's the thing they don't want it to be Mm -hmm. not running after that so there is tolerating uncertainty baked in Mm -hmm. in a way but it's not the ultimate goal and it's i don't think it should be the focus of conversation or the focus of treatment in in the context then of this uh, of sexual orientation ocd would there would then i'm really nervous that i just opened up this topic because no, because well, because for listeners who might have this issue and be very like uh, I don't know, just because we haven't, I haven't outlined any thoughts about it. But okay, yeah, to- to- totally fine. I get I get worried about what emails I'm going to get every week. Um, but the so in this would there would the tolerance then be or the tolerance the the focus of treatment then need to be on maybe that that ambiguity that ambiguity of the nuances of sexuality. I think it depends on the case, meaning I think there could be, I don't think there's one size fits all. Like we could have a sexual orientation case where um, I mean, they come in so many different shapes and sizes. We could have one where it's about, yeah, you're straight and you thought that guy was hot and congratulations. Kinsey was right. You're like 99% straight, right? That could, that could be a case more um, or it could be, but it could be so many other things. You know, it could be like symbolic of sexual shame that they had as a kid that's now getting represented as, you know, what if I'm gay, but really isn't about being gay. It's about a person who grew up being hyper vigilant about their sexual feelings. Or it could be about a person who um, grew up in a family where being close to one parent distanced you from the other parent. And so having any feelings of, wanting to be close to a man makes them afraid that they're going to lose their relationship with a woman, mm-hmm. right? Be sort of metaphorical and have nothing to do with sexual orientation. So I don't think there's a one size fits all. Those are just examples. Um, but yeah, I hope I didn't say anything sloppy. You said it great. I, I, I appreciate that. Well, I, I know that you have a, you have a heart out at this point, so I do want to uh, let you go, but I really appreciate your thoughts um, on, on both of these questions. And again, uh, if, uh, if anybody has questions for, um, uh, for uh, Michael, Dr. Greenberg, I have to say it, I'm sorry, sorry. but um, <laughs> for, for him, for a future episode, I, uh, I'll, I'll tag on. Send them, in and about I'll, yeah, send, them, send them in and I'll come back and we'll talk about them. Awesome. Uh, anything else that you want to add before uh, we sign off today? Uh, No, just thank you for having me, and uh, I look forward to the next time. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you all very much for making it through this episode with Dr. Greenberg. So again, if you have questions for Dr. Greenberg about uh, rumination-focused ERP, you can uh, check it out, or you can uh, message me over at fearcastpodcast.com, or you can uh, send me a message over to Instagram at fearcastpodcast. And uh, I I will forward those to Dr. Greenberg, and he's been so kind to uh, 
to join for a future episode to answer some of those questions. Um, if there were some elements that we missed or there are elements that uh, uh, you wanted to add, also send me those questions or comments. I'd be more than happy to forward them, as well as have those on uh, that future episode uh, uh, for Dr. Greenberg. So uh, please remember, everybody, that the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you have questions about uh, uh, treatment and need a little bit of help, go to fearcastpodcast.com, click on the Find Help link, and there will be some uh, uh, information for you there. So until next time, everybody, Take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.